0: What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? This is Sports 360, and I'm your host, Jeff Fennell. Today we have sports agent Rex Gary with us. Rex hails from the Philly area, and he's a veteran agent with experience in both baseball and hockey. And he's here to talk to us about the agent business and to share his views on all kinds of things, from pitch clocks and walk-up music in baseball, to Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Philly cheesesteak. You're going to want to hear this one, so hang with us. This is Sports 360. Well, I'm pleased right now to have with me Rex Gary, veteran agent of both baseball and hockey, and he's here joining us on Sports 360. Rex, how are you today?
1: I'm great, Jeff. How are you? Great. I'm doing good.
0: I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, we're finally getting some good weather here in the Northeast. Uh, the NBA playoffs are in full swing, so I'm doing great.
1: <laughs> Me too. Although my Sixers, uh, took it on the chin yeah. last night, but, um, I'm still confident they'll pull through. <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll see. They got a good team, Rex. I mean, they really do have a good team. Um, and we'll see how it goes, uh, over the next couple of days, but, uh, they're kind of young, and so it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to, uh, you know, having a little bit of a setback.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, obviously Game 2 is going to be huge, but, um, you know, they they had a week off. I, you know, they weren't hitting their threes. Selick's played great. Um, I, you know, I think Game 2 will be a different story. Right. Well, Rex,
0: let's, um, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, you've been in the agent business and the sports business for a long time. Um, how many years, Rex, have you been an agent?
1: Well, I, I was working at a law firm in Philadelphia uh, in the late 1980s, and I I've been doing arbitration cases for baseball players. Uh, an old friend of mine, Jim Turner, was working for a sports agent in St. Louis, and that was a time when arbitration was becoming much more uh, of a factor in the player's ability to, to make money. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was something that that was very active back then, and there were a lot of cases every year, as we've seen in recent seasons. Um, again, but teams were were armed with experienced attorneys litigators uh, arguing their case and a lot of times back then agents were just coming in you know trying to argue the case on their own whether or not they had they were lawyers or had any type of litigation background and um, players weren't having the success that they wanted to have and so some agents were reaching out to lawyers uh, who were litigators to to help them argue their cases and Jimmy asked me to do that for um, your and my very good friend phil bradley uh, which is my first case uh, right. back in i'm going to say 86 or 87 and i i learned the industry through that got very close with a number of people at the players association who sort of helped me um, prepare the cases and in 1992 uh, jim turner and i started Turner gary sports and i left my firm and was able to hit the ground running and been working with players ever since
0: and see that's an interesting story because you know today a lot of people you know young people they purpose to get into the agent business Um, and that's not really what happened with you it sounds like right you were practicing law you were a litigator and then you got this opportunity um but let's talk about that a little bit you know for young people today young professionals who want to get into the game um, you know, maybe they don't get a break like you did or an opportunity like you did. Is there anything that you would say, and I'm sure you've counseled young people along the way, but what would you say today to someone who said, hey, I want to get into the
1: sports business? Well, with my experience, you know, I I was lucky. I mean, I, I it was nothing, you know, back then, sports law, sports law courses um, was not what it is today that the you know I didn't have a sports law class um, and I love sports I played sports my whole life and but it was not something that, that you know, I planned to do I mean I began my career as a, a criminal prosecutor and then moved to the law firm so so I was lucky and and I think what I would tell young people is you know, you just, you have to keep your eyes and ears open. Yes, this is something that you may want to pursue and learn from people who are in the business, talk to people, network, but also be patient. You you, you don't know when the an opportunity is gonna come your way and do everything you can to prepare for it. But I, I just think for, for particularly lawyers, you know, what I tell law students, to me go go practice law learn what it's like to have a client come to you and ask you and pay you for your judgment and your that feeling um as you know jeff of of that relationship that fiduciary relationship where, where somebody is coming to you for your judgment and and they're depending upon you um you know to, to Give them the right advice and steer them in the right direction, that that's an incredible feeling and an incredible responsibility. So I, I just think that type of experience is something that the these young people, particularly young law students, need to experience. And and that prepares them for whatever they do next in sports, whether it's working for a team, representing players, um, or, you know, any uh, other, you know, various types of jobs, you know, in the sports industry.
0: Yeah, you make an excellent point. When you talk about um, the responsibility, it's a tremendous responsibility when, you know, agents or players or, you know, team officials, if you work for a team, you know, come and seek your advice. Um, And one of the things I tell Uh, those who aspire to get into the business is the importance of being professional and, you know, not being a fan. If you work on the player's side or, you know, get over, you know, get carried away with the perks of the job. If you work on the club side, but to understand that, you know, you have to be professional and, you know, your decision-making and your judgment, which people are looking for, um, you know, could impact millions of dollars for someone. And so, you know, the importance of being professional, being diligent, doing your homework, doing your job, is something that is so important. And I think that's something that has to get across to young and old alike, but especially for those who are trying to break in.
1: No, no doubt about it. And, and again, you, you just never know what opportunity is going to come your way. And, you know, you... you your career is heading in, in one direction and all of a sudden, here's an opportunity that comes your way that takes you in another direction. And, you know, I, I, having several decades of experience, you know, and, and a lot of friends, both lawyers and non-lawyers, in, in I've seen where careers are heading in one direction and then all of a sudden somebody takes advantage of an opportunity and, and heads off in another direction. and just the more experience that you have the, the the more people that you get to know and learn from um, you know that that's what prepares you for for what comes next and uh you know I, I just can't you know emphasize enough the the importance of seeking knowledge through other people and uh what's what's great about this business and one of the very best things about this business is 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 you know, in sports, I mean, you you meet so many people from so many different backgrounds, and they may be players, they may be coaches, they may be managers, they may be general managers, former players, successful business people who move into the sports world, and there's so much you can learn from all these people, and um, and I, I just think that that being open um, and and asking questions and learning through other people is, is invaluable. Sure. Sure.
0: Now, Rex, um, in terms of some of the work that you've done, I know that, um, you know, you spoke a little bit about baseball and some of the work you've done there. And I'd like you to describe that, but also tell us, uh, some of the other things you've done. I know, for example, that you, you continue to do a lot of work, um, or each year you do work in, in hockey. With salary arbitration, but give us a flavor for some of the work that you've been able to do over the course of your career. Well, mm-hmm.
1: when we started Turnegary Sports, we were able to hit the ground running. I mean, we had some great people and and some very good players um, that we represented. I mean, two people who are Hall of Fame: one, Ryan Sandberg. Um, you know, in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, Joe Carter, who's in the Canadian Hall of Fame, had a tremendous career uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays and people like Phil Bradley, who I've mentioned and is a mutual friend of ours. So we were able to kind of hit the ground running and, you know, continue to build our business on, on the baseball side. And as I told you, right, my entree into the business was through through salary arbitration and hockey. Adopted a salary arbitration system. And in the mid 90s, I was asked by the NHL Players Association if I wanted to help them represent their players in salary arbitration. And, you know, obviously that was a no brainer. I love hockey. I grew up here in Philly, I'm also a Flyers fan. And so I I started doing hockey arbitration so I don't represent players individually in hockey I'm basically outside counsel to the to the NHL Players Association which is a really nice balance and so since the mid-90s I've been representing um, hockey players in arbitration cases and uh, it's an interesting um, perspective because as many people are aware in baseball um, the player submits his salary request, the club submits their salary request, and the arbitration panel picks one or the other. In hockey, the arbitrators can pick a number in the middle. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic, but um, but it's still a, a very fast-paced, intense, you know, four hours um, as, it, as it is in baseball.
0: And I want to, you know, you, you, you talk about the, you know, you, a little bit about the differences in, in, in the two arbitrations. And, well, first of all, how many salary arbitrations would you say, salary arbitration hearings, have you been a part of uh, baseball and hockey?
1: Wow. Um, in terms of hearings themselves, I mean, I've probably worked on, you know, some function of a couple hundred cases. Um, but in terms of actually hearing themselves, I have probably argued uh, between 40 and 50, probably split fairly equally between the two sports, maybe, maybe a few more in hockey um, than baseball. Now, some of the hockey cases haven't had decisions. Uh, what happens frequently, much more frequently in hockey than baseball is you argue the case, you present the case. The arbitrators have 48 hours to render an opinion. And it's not unusual for the two sides to reach an agreement in that 48-hour period. So you you, you never get the result in that, in that instance. But, you know, ultimately the idea of arbitration is for the two sides to reach some sort of agreement. And if they do, then it works.
0: Now, also... Um when you talk about the 48 hours in hockey for the arbitrators to render a decision, baseball arbitrators have 24 hours, right? Correct. Um, but hockey arbitrators actually write opinions, correct? And and we know yes. baseball arbitrators don't. Um, so in baseball, you, you get a a result up or down. You either won the case or you lost the case. Don't know why. Hockey, there's at least some opinion, some rationale that's offered. Which of those two approaches do you think are better? Well,
1: as as a lawyer, I mean, I like I like to read why we won or lost. I mean, I I'd I'd, I'd like to read the reasoning uh, behind the decision. And so, I, I, my preference is to have the arbitrators explain why they they made the decision that they, that they made um the downside of that sometimes is that um you know arbitrators then get quoted in their you know from what they said in their previous cases you know in in their next hearing and sometimes you know i think they feel perhaps a little bit you know boxed in and so what what ultimately happens sometimes is the opinions that you read are, are kind of vanilla. Um it, basically a recitation of the argument and then, you know, very sort of scaled down reasoning and, and a result. But um but I I, I I like the bottom line is I like to I like to read the opinion and I like to know you know why the arbitrator made the decision and, and what what their thought process was. Sure. Because I know in baseball sometimes Um, If a decision doesn't go the way you think it should, and as bright and professional and experienced as these arbitrators are, um, uh, when when the decision goes the other way, which is not a great feeling, you'd love to know why.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, in baseball, I, I think one of the things that not having an opinion does, at least in my mind, what it does for me is it really heightens the risk of going into that room because you have no idea why the arbitrators decide the way they do. But let me ask you this, Rex. Um, you know, you've been at this for a while, and, you know, um, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I think in 2000 or 2001, you know, I was in you know, my first arbitration hearing and have been in arbitration ever since and have seen it change right, with the, you know, the advanced stats and things of that nature. But I've also looked back at prior cases. You know, you talked about doing arbitration cases in 1992, and I like to joke that at that time, I mean, they were being done in crayon, right, compared to how they're being done now, right, with the the computer graphics and all the advanced stats and everything else, you know, these arbitration books are over 100 pages long. Um, tell us a little bit about that change in arbitration and how have you, how you have adapted to it.
1: I was for a time, um, in the, circuit attorney's office, and appellate lawyer. And so I, I was used to writing briefs. And, and so, you know, my, my initial approach, because there really was no, set formula for how to how to present a case or what to write or or how back when I when I started and so I would write a legal brief with whether it was you know 25 30 pages you know basically explaining my argument and why with with whatever support I needed and then I would have exhibits you know attached to the brief you know player stats um, comparable player stats and back then basically all you had was a baseball register so you you'd be photographing pages of players from from the baseball register and they would be your exhibits well now obviously it, with computer programs and and all these websites and you know the ability to to put together charts um i mean it is it's night and day in terms of what was presented back then and what's presented now. Now there's there's not really a written brief it's it's a series of charts and exhibits with obviously some some writing um, explaining you know what the purpose of you know this chart what this chart shows what this comparison shows but like you said I mean it's it's multicolored and graphs and charts and arrows and um but it's very sophisticated because obviously there are a lot more statistics available um, computer programs that allow more in-depth comparisons and so um you know it's probably equally as labor-intensive because you know back then writing a 25 30 page brief that, that you like that's that's logical that explains everything that that you want to present in in a coherent manner that took a lot of time but uh, it was nowhere near the 100 200 page 300 page presentations that that sometimes arbitrators are given today and uh, so that has changed but what 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 also has changed obviously is you know I did a case you know in the probably late late 80s early 90s for a player where the in baseball where the numbers were, if the player won, he would receive $285,000. If he lost, um, he would be paid $215,000. Well, the minimum salary now is over $500,000. So, so what has changed is obviously the dollars, you know, as, as the baseball industry, for instance, has gone from, I guess, like 1.2 billion back then to a $10 billion industry, you know, salaries have gone up too. So now you have spreads in baseball of you know a million dollars or more,
0: several right. million
1: dollars. Um and so, you know, the, the days back when I was when I first started of um arguing over fifty thousand, seventy five thousand, a hundred thousand dollars, I mean that's nothing today.
0: Yeah, I think um in fact on that point, I think Mookie Betts had like a three million dollar spread in his case this year. Um that's a large spread, and most cases aren't that, uh, you know, aren't that far apart. The sides aren't that far apart, but, you know, it does happen. Um, well, I, I guess in the end, Rex, we can thank Al Gore, right, because he invented the Internet, and so whether he knows it or not, um, he's changed baseball arbitration because now we have access to more and more material. Um. um yeah. Thank you,
1: Al Gore, then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, and you, Jeff, I mean, as experienced as you are in this, you know this, too. What hasn't changed is the competitive atmosphere. Whether yeah. you're arguing over 50000 or $3 million, I mean, it's it's a fight. And, um, you know, players are competitive people. People on the club side are competitive. Lawyers are competitive. and so, you know whether whether you win a case where the spread was fifty thousand or two million, um, it's still the same feeling, you know. No and, question and, about and, it. And, and and the same effort that you put into it because it's important.
0: Yeah, you 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 raise an excellent point there. I will tell you, you know, in in all the time that I've been in this business, you know, the 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 highest compliment I ever received from one of my clients was. Uh, I was helping him negotiate a contract, and he was getting close. And you know how it gets—you know, when you go back and forth, and now you're starting to get close. You just want to get the deal done, and I can sense that's where he was. Um, but you know, I, I had said to him that, um, you know, it, you know, this is a multi-million-dollar deal, and I said to him, I said, you know yeah, but we should try to get this. And it was like an extra $25,000. And, and I just simply said to him, I said, that's the player's money. And he said to me, he said, you know, that's one thing I appreciate about you because you'll fight for every dollar. And it goes to your point of the competitiveness, right? You know, you, you, it's a fight, right? And these players have if you're on the player side, you know, they have a small window of opportunity to make their money. They're going to retire at age, you know, in, in their thirties or forties, if they're lucky uh, to get to the forties. Um, and it's a fight to, to, to get every, every dollar. I'm not talking about being piggish, but talking about what you said, being competitive and fighting. And I think that's a, that's a, a aspect of this industry that is kind of understood, but a lot of people don't talk about
1: And quite frankly, you know, those that do what we do representing players, there are many who do understand that, that, that your responsibility, you know, is to to your client and your client's interest comes first. And, you know, you, it's your obligation, you know, to fight for your client and, and give your client your your best advice in his best interest. But unfortunately, there are, too many people, and even if it's one, that's too many, um, who are on the player's representation side that that don't get that or don't practice that. And, um, you know, that's that's when players suffer.
0: Well, let me ask you something that, you, you know, you and I have spoken about in the past, and I know you feel, you know, very passionately about this, and you sort of hit on it right there, and that is the agent business, the regulation of the agent business, some of the things that you would like to see different in the agent business. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, kind of expanding on the theme um, that I just touched on. I mean, it, it, we learn in law school, and I'm not saying that that every, every lawyer um, abides by it but but if a lawyer doesn't abide by their code of ethics you know they get sanctioned you know they could lose their ability to practice law and you know fundamentally is it you know your client's interest comes first that that's the nature of the relationship and whether you give your client advice that he or she wants to hear or doesn't your obligation is to give them your very best advice and best judgment and work as hard as you can um, in their behalf and this business the agent business um, obviously has become it was always competitive and it's become more and more competitive which is good because competition obviously uh, makes people tend to work harder um, makes people theoretically more competent in their ability to represent players but unfortunately it also Causes people to try to skip corners and do things that they're not supposed to do in order to attract clients, and you know whether it's illegal inducements or whatever. And so, I, I think what all those sports have regulations that you can't provide illegal inducements to, to players, um, and you know that that's understandable and. and Perfectly appropriate, but the problem obviously comes in the enforcement and and really catching people who who do that, and that that's the challenge. But the the idea, I, I think part of part of the challenge too is also educating players that if somebody is going to cheat to get you as a client, then how do you know that ultimately they're not going to cheat you when it's maybe their best interest versus your best interest. And, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of players, they're young people. Um, they come from different backgrounds and they may not fully understand the nature of the relationship and what agents really can do. Um, and, you know, they, they sort of look in a understandably more short-sighted manner, like what can you do for me now, okay? what? What equipment can you get me what you know what can you put in my pocket now, as opposed to how are you going to help my career? How are you going to help make me better? How are you going to do the kind of things off the field so i don't have to worry about um, anything but taking care of what I need to do on the field you know they they a lot of it has to do with educating players. And and I think the, I know the Major League Baseball Players Association. I know the Hockey Players Association, um, you know, the two that I'm most familiar with. I know they do you know, a great job trying to educate players. But I sure. think overall more has to be done. And, and the ethics of the industry, you know, we, we need to raise that in some fashion somehow. Right. Yeah,
0: I agree with you on that. And switching gears for for a moment, I want to talk a little bit about this past baseball offseason. We had a lot of free agents who, you know, good players who stayed out on the market for a while. Many of them did not get the type of deals that they thought they would get, whether it was, you know, Mike Moustakis, Jake Arrieta. Uh, A number of players uh, who did not, you know, J.D. Martinez, even though he did well, but he didn't get anywhere near the $200 million that was the expectation going in. Now, I don't know how realistic that was, but the bottom line is that, you know, we can agree that the market was different. Um, You know, some have suggested that it was collusion. Some have said it's an anomaly. Some have said, you know, you have to wait and see how – things play out over you know the remaining years of the collective bargaining agreement Uh, what were your thoughts or what are your thoughts on this past free agent market in baseball
1: i think that there are a number of factors and and to me perhaps the most significant is the number of clubs that decided not to enter the market not 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 to try to improve themselves and you know whether you call want to call it tanking uh, which is perfectly fair, but you know there there are clubs it used to be you know all thirty clubs would, would try to do something to improve themselves with it with and i I acknowledge that they all have different budgets, but you know there would be somebody out there that can help them, but there are a bunch of clubs this this off season that basically sat it out and um, you know, whether they did it because they wanted to tank or whether they did it because, you know, they would figure they would just wait until the tail end when, when, you know, theoretically prices would drop and they'll get somebody on the cheap, I, I don't know. But there were a lot of clubs that sat it out. At the top, you know, the Dodgers and the Yankees who traditionally, uh, you know, have been big market clubs who were willing to drive the market, um, they weren't tanking because the the, Yan- the Yankees got Giancarlo Stanton, but they had, they had done what they needed to do. And, you know, they, they made decisions that, that they're not going to increase their payroll, which is already relatively high. So you take those two out of the market and then you have a bunch of teams at the bottom that just chose not to participate. Now all of a sudden you have, you know, maybe two thirds the number of of teams participating. So that that has a huge impact. Um, And then as time passed, whether it was by design, um, you know, collectively, or whether they just all collectively recognized that, you know what, maybe if we wait, prices will drop. Well, that's what happened. And, you know, the end result for a number of players was they turned down deals early on and ended up signing for deals that, you know, apparently weren't, weren't remotely close to what, what they could have signed for earlier, um, if they even got offers. A lot, of, a lot of really good players didn't get offers. So I, I think and, – and I hate to hedge, but I think to some degree it's an anomaly. It will surprise me if next offseason, um, you know, is – as drastic as this one but uh, it, it does concern me that the clubs in, in any given off-season cho- choose not to participate you know in the in in the free agent process um and that's troubling
0: yeah and that that's a concern that you know Tony Clark the executive director of the MLBPA has been very vocal about um and so we'll see. Um, we'll see what the next you know market brings in the market after that. But certainly this market um got a lot of people's attention. Um well Rex, I, I can't let you go without um talking about hoops. And we talked a little bit about your Sixers, um, but I want to talk about you. And your hoops game? I know you play <laughs> what every Friday or just about every Friday, mm-hmm. um, uh, at a local gym.
1: I I play. I have friends that teach and coach at Swarthmore College near near where I live, and, and friends who are um, professors at St. Joe University. So I got I have I have some choices during during the week for a lunchtime ball. But um, okay. look, I, I, it, I all I do you know my my ceiling years ago was a mediocre past first high school point guard that was that was at my peak um right now that was your peak <laughs> that was my that, that was my peak okay um so my goal each week is to get invited back next week <laughs> and I, and, I've, and i've learned and i've learned to do that You pass, you set picks, and you hustle on defense. That's it. That's a good formula. (laughs) And fortunately, you know, I'm I'm able to hang in there week after week doing those three things.
0: Okay. But, I mean, you do shoot every now and then, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) I do. Okay. My range, my range, um, you know, I – has had necessarily to expand from you know, fifteen eighteen feet. Those shots get blocked too often. Now now I'm beyond the three. <laughs> right, so. I think that's what happens
0: when you get older though. Right, when you're younger, you know you you're, you're daring. You you drive the lane. You go to the you go to the hoop. You know, and then as you get older, you start. You know, the mid range becomes more important, and then after a while, you know, you start shooting from the opposite baseline.
1: If you, you got it, <laughs> but yeah, like, right. So now, as you get older, you, you drive to the hoop, and then you're you're going up for the layup, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm eight feet from the basket.
0: I used to be, I
1: used to be, I used to be two feet from the basket, laying it up. You know so anyway that's that's what changes and that's what kind of takes away the the ability to finish
0: mm. so you are one of those guys who like you know you, you 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 play defense you pick up the guy in the backcourt and just make his life miserable taking the ball over
1: the the midcourt line not the midcourt line that's a little too that's a little too aggressive but no i mean yeah i i I Look, I also I do it for exercise, so I play as hard as I can. But uh, okay, but and defense is fun. I like it. I like, it. Yeah. you slap that's the what, floor you play. That's what got me. Defense. That's what got me on the court in high school.
0: You, you one of those guys who slap the floor when they get ready to play defense.
1: Jeff, never, <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never slap the floor. I'm never glad. I, I played with a guy one time. It, it, I, it, this was a, a summer camp, and you talk about fo- he would slap the floor and scream, and he played very little defense. But <laughs> he thought he thought by doing that, you know, it would show that he's he's playing defense. But he didn't. It drove me crazy. Yeah. So I I never did that.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that because <laughs> that, that that's one of those things that are that's just annoying to me. Um okay, Rex, I'm gonna give you five quick things. I just want to get your thoughts on these five quick things and um you know, give me a word or two on them. All right. Um sure. the first is the first one is a pitch clock in baseball. Yes. Oh yeah. I didn't Speed think you would say that. Okay. Um I I got to stop on that one. That surprised me.
1: Um you would like
0: to see a pitch clock in baseball.
1: I mean a reasonable one? Yeah. I yeah, I do. I mean, I, I I think I think there's there are times where I where I see pitchers well, I don't think pitchers need and and I'm, I'm I don't I'm not a pitcher never was. But some pitchers take too much time between pitches and and so I'm not talking about anything drastic, but at least where they know that I gotta throw a pitch within this amount of time and hitters have to be in in the box.
0: Okay. Speed up the game. Speed up the game. Okay, so then what about this? Player walk up music.
1: Nope. Get nope rid of it. What?
0: Get rid, Get of, rid it. of it. Get rid of it.
1: That's just that just me. I I look. I when I first started going to games, this is completely old school. But when I start going to games, you're sitting in the stands. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon in the summer, and you might hear some organ music. But when when the next batter's coming up, you just hear cheering. That's it. You don't hear, you know. Then you know whatever it is, 15 seconds of whatever type of music that that the player wants. No, announce who's batting like they used to do at Fenway Yankee Stadium. Let people cheer or whatever. Let the guy walk up and hit. Wow, that's too that's too old school. But that I know. Yeah. Right.
0: Okay, so you surprised that's me on those first two. Okay, now I know you're from the Philly area, so I got to give you some Philly, uh, some Philly some Philly categories here. Um the Philadelphia Eagles and you know I'm a Dallas fan, Dallas Cowboys fan, but I'm going to let you get your opportunity. So what are your and thoughts on the Philadelphia that, Eagles?
1: Yeah. They uplifted this city like nothing I've experienced um <laughs> in my lifetime. It was it was the coolest run, you know, an underdog team. I mean the whole story and and the appropriate analogy for, for Philadelphia is, is, is Rocky. I mean, an underdog. Uh, and by the way, a lot of people in Philadelphia believe that Rocky really existed, but. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised
0: but, by that. <laughs> not surprised. But, but after all, these are people who threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Okay. So um,
1: yeah, one guy, one
0: guy, yeah, one guy, he had, he had some um, friends, they were making the snowballs for him and he was just throwing them.
1: But it, it's, it's, what it's done for not just I mean the city I mean this whole tri-state area here um, Philadelphia Delaware South Jersey um, Philadelphia South I mean it's just it, it, the psyche of this whole area I mean it, it's palpable. Um, sure. What, what what the Eagles have done.
0: Right, and I'm here in the Southern Jersey area, so I I see it and hear it a lot. Um, ben
1: Simmons and Joel Embiid three championships together. Ooh. Okay.
0: Well, we gotta get that first one. We'll see how they do uh the rest of this NBA yeah, I'm playoff not, season. I'm not
1: sure number one is this year.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't think so either, but they have those are two very talented young players. Uh and of course you have to be concerned about it and both of them had some injury history. I mean Simmons, you know, um you don't you're not as concerned about it as with Embiid, but Two very talented players,
1: and then lastly, Philly cheesesteak. Are you a Philly cheesesteak guy? Absolutely. Ooh. And I won't have a. I will not have a cheesesteak anywhere else in the country. Why is that? Because I've I've tried them elsewhere, and they don't taste the same. Mm, philly cheesesteak only taste. You got it. You got it. <laughs>
0: That's yeah. okay, and as close as I am to Philadelphia, because I'm about forty forty five minutes outside Philadelphia, I've never had a Philly cheesesteak, and it's not because of anything. I'm not a, I'm not a cheesesteak eating guy, so um, I'll save it for for you and, and for your friends and. So uh, but let me ask you though, if you eat cheesesteak, I mean, I, I guess that's one of the reasons why you got to hit the court every Friday too, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> got burn that yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it, it's. One of the reasons why, um, you know, the, the guys that, that I, I used to be asked to guard, um, I'm not asked to guard anymore. <laughs> yeah. The guys the guys I'm guarding tend to be a little bit chunkier than the guys I used to guard. No, right. but, uh, <laughs> but here's a funny story about Philly cheesesteak. So one of my best friends in the business and, and um, retired client um, is a player named Andy Phillips who played for the Yankees. Um, then coached at University of Alabama, so he he comes into Philadelphia, and um, his wife uh, was coming to to see him, and so I said, Andy, you know, what, you know where do you want to eat? You, know, you want to go Italian? You want to go steakhouse? What? He goes, Oh no, no, we have to go for Philly cheesesteaks. I'm saying, No, you come to Philadelphia. Let me take you to, to someplace place really nice. He goes, No, you know, Bethany and I, we. We want you to take us, get a good Philadelphia cheesesteak. So I took Andy and Bethany Phillips to Pat Steaks, which is, if you've been there, it's in South Philly, sits there on a street corner. Probably you can, you basically sit on a sidewalk, you know, one of four or five tables, and um, you got to go up, you have to order, and you have to order it the right way. If you take too long, they send you to the back of the line and go next. So, um, that was our meal. They loved it. And uh, every time they come back, they want to go get a ch- Philly's cheesesteak. Wow.
0: I'm taken by the story that you can actually go to a restaurant ready to spend your money. And if you don't order right, they're going to send you to the
1: back of the line. That's just amazing yeah. to
0: me. Only yeah. in Philadelphia can that
1: happen. And nobody leaves. You, you just you put your head down, go to the back of the line, and then you know wait your turn. And, and just know that when you get up there again, you got to be ready to order your cheese whiz win.
0: No pressure, but just get your order right. You got um, it. All right. Last thing, Rex, I have for you. Um, in terms of you know your profession and your you know your agent business, anything new on the horizon coming up? Any plans for Rex Gary? Rex Gary Sports. And you've been at this for a while. What What does the future hold?
1: The, the great thing about the future in this business is you, you know you. you you don't know what it, what it holds. And, you know, I, I always keep my eyes and ears open for new challenges and new opportunities, you know, and, and, and clients quite, quite frankly. I mean, even though I've been doing this, you know, for as long as I've been doing it um I, and, and have some fantastic people as clients or, or players that I used to represent that are now friends and I stay in touch. Um, you know, you just, you never know when the next opportunity is going to come and keep your eyes and ears open. And, um, you know, a lot of my players that I represented um, are now coaching. And so that sort of, um, you know, allowed me to evolve and begin, I've begun to represent guys who are now coaching or broadcasting, um, both at the college and and professional level. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm always open for, for new opportunities and, and the more you get out there and the more people you meet, um, you get an occasional referral. You get an opportunity to speak to people um, at universities, law schools. And, uh, you know, it's to me, it, it, it's all fun. And, and it's it, the decision that I made in the early 90s to do this. Um, you know, it, like any business, it has it's had its ups and downs, times of, you know, heightened anxiety and, and times of, of elation. Um, but I, I wouldn't have done anything different looking back. Yeah.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Good to hear that you're, you know, still out there scanning the horizon and see what, you know, what might be out there. So, Rexwell, I really
1: thank you, man, for coming on uh, today. My- and oh, go ahead. It's my pleasure, Jeff, and, and, you know, the one thing I wanted to add to that, um, because it's a part of our relationship, you always have to keep, you always have to keep uh, and look for the opportunity to laugh. Keep laughing, um, you know, uh, keep it fun, keep it light, um, don't take things, you know, overly serious, you know, and and just be appreciative for, for the opportunities that we have
0: yeah no question about it yeah and we often do that when we uh get together have a good laugh so um yeah i appreciate that so and like i said i do appreciate you coming on today and and being with us here sports 360 rex gary uh uh and i'm sure rex will will catch up uh down the road all right really my my pleasure jeff thank you okay thanks I hope you enjoyed that conversation with veteran sports agent Rex Gary. If you did, let us know. Leave us a comment. Tell us what you think. In the meantime, we have another great show in store for you. So be sure to make plans to join us again on the next episode of Sports 360. As always, Scully takes us home in style. See you next time.